I have the privilege of announcing to you a brand new series that we're going through, and it's based on a book. And it's not just any book. No, it's not the latest and greatest book that's out there. In fact, it's quite ancient. We don't even know when it was actually written, but it's at least 1,920 years old. It's old. However, what is contained in this book is more relevant and more fresh and more insightful into our hearts meaningfully than anything that is in print anywhere else at any time. It is just that good. It is one of the 66 books as a collection, as we know as the Bible, which is the overall time bestseller. Over 3.9 billion copies of the Bible have been printed, I believe, in the last 50 years, dwarfing everything else. Why? Because it's relevant. Because it has impact and can change our lives because of what is written in there. Now, one of those books is the Gospel of John, and it's found in the New Testament. Now, the Bible is divided into two pieces, as many of you know. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, what divides the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, in this most simplest way, it's those who were in the Old Testament looked forward in faith to the cross of Christ and his resurrection, and those in the New Testament look back as the event has already heard, and they look back with the same faith of hope and expectation of what Christ already did on the cross. It is the cross of Christ that divides the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the book of John is found in the very beginning of the New Testament with the first four books called the Gospels. They're a collection of books, and they have the biography of Christ's life, chronicalizing his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And they are, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, all four of them have an account of Christ's life, and they are all accurate, but they all have a different angle. And it's worth for us, since we're giving the introduction to the book of John, it is fitting for us to just get a little bit of context and background to the book of John in contrast to the other Gospels. So first, let's go through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was written by Matthew. That's telling, isn't it? Of course it's going to be Matthew who wrote Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, which was an occupation that was not popular in his time. But he became a disciple of Jesus, and he was one of the twelve, and he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, his Gospel, to the Jewish populace. And he was emphasizing Jesus as the king, the promised Messiah. And because of that, Matthew is a great tie-in to the Old Testament because much of the Old Testament, as they look forward to the Messiah, is seeing the fulfillment of Scripture through the person of Jesus. So he often goes back to the Old Testament, reminding the Jewish people that Jesus really is the Christ and he is the king of kings. That is is the story for Matthew. Now, it was written to the Jewish populace a long time ago, but the great thing is the principles implied, the teachings of Christ embedded there, we get a secondary effect of listening to it because the truths are universal. So we can look over his initial primary audience and glean so much for ourselves. That's how fresh it is, a part of those 3.9 billion copies that have written because Matthew is still relevant today. The next book is the book of Mark. Now, Mark wasn't writing to the Jewish people. He was actually writing to the Roman people. And the Roman people are an adventurous group of people. So he doesn't go back with prophetic understanding. He writes it as a fast-hitting action story. It's a short book, and it's meant to capture people's attention. 
it, often when you read through the book of Mark, you'll realize that things move quickly. It says, and Jesus then immediately went, and then Jesus immediately, it keeps the ball rolling to keep the story moving to keep people's attention. Why is this important? Because the gospel is in itself, the words are, the meaning of the gospel is good news or a good story. I find it interesting when you think about people like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who have been great authors in the past, writing the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings. Actually, it was Tolkien himself who led C.S. Lewis to the Lord. And part of the reason that attracted C.S. Lewis to Jesus was the power and the beauty and the dynamic of the gospel message. Tolkien actually showed C.S. that God's not boring and that the whole story of the gospel presentation about God becoming one of us, loving us and taking our place and give us an opportunity to have hope in Him is the best story ever devised. And the greatest thing is, it's true. And that is the power of a good story. These two fellows get it, and so did Mark. It's a great read and a great gospel. A different angle, and it focuses on Jesus as a suffering servant. Luke is a completely different take now from Mark. He's more analytical. And he was actually a physician, so he had more of a scientific mind, and he was absolutely brilliant. When he wrote the gospel of Luke, he wanted to give an orderly, exact account of who Jesus was. It was a completely different angle, but he wanted to make sure he was precise, and he was on the ball. He researched it out and made sure everything he wrote was exactly the truth. And he came to an immaculate truth and understanding that the story about Jesus as a Savior is simply a fact. He is the Savior of the world. Like one plus one, so is Jesus, the Savior of the world. A different take, but it's important to note. And then we come to the Gospel of John. Interesting, as you actually study, actually going through the background of these Gospels, everybody seems to say, yeah, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's John, way over here somewhere. It's different, but it's uniquely different in so many different ways. Of course, it's written by the youngest of Christ's disciples, John himself. But what makes it so unique is that his audience is not to the Jewish people or the Romans or to Gentiles. It's to everyone. Everyone, everywhere, at all times. That means of all the scriptures that we have where there is always a primary audience, John's primary audience is you and me and your kids and my kids. It is written for every person, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, regardless of where you live or what your background is. John is writing right to your heart and to mine. It's a different take. And unlike the other Gospels, which are accurate, his focus is on Jesus being God himself. And it's interesting when you look at the other Gospels, the beginning that they start off with is oftentimes Jesus' birth or the beginning of his ministry. But John saw something different, that Jesus really never had a beginning. 
and that's how it starts, and we're not going to talk about it next week. This isn't really a message. It's more of a teaser because we're not going to be able to speak directly to the book of John. But only to say this, that John identifies that Jesus never had a beginning. This Word was with God in the beginning and created everything, and the Son of God became a human being to be with us and to take our place on the cross. John identifies Jesus not only as being 100% human, but also 100% God at the same time. In fact, he references Jesus saying seven times, I am, which is the name that God gave himself when he was speaking to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus made the claim as Christ, and John was convinced that he really was the Son of God by what he said and how he lived. It's an important telling tale for us to understand. The other thing that is actually really telling about the Gospel of John, and I like this, is John goes out of his way to not put any attention on himself. He speaks in third person. If you didn't know any better, you wouldn't even think John's in the story at all. Why, why would he do that? You see, we're not going to speak directly to the gospel itself. We're going to talk around it, bring some context so that we have a better appreciation of what we're going to listen to for the weeks to come. Because we see in his life his intention and the reason and his motivation to understand how he wrote and why he wrote the gospel as he did. So really what we want to focus now on for the next couple of minutes is simply, who is John? That is what we want to talk about. In that, it actually tells us a lot about the gospel itself. First of all, John was really young. I was surprised to find out that of Christ's disciples, 11 of them, and Jesus himself were between the ages of 25 and 33, which I was surprised to learn because I always thought Peter was like 40 or older. But no, he wasn't. Apparently, he's only two or three years older than Jesus himself. They're all sort of in the same age, same demographic. And then there is... John. He was born around 11 AD, and Jesus started his ministry around 27 AD, which means John was a teenager of 16. He was not really in the same category as the other guys, either by physical development or mentally as well. I would hope that there's a difference between a 16-year-old and a 30-year-old when you're talking to them. John was just this young, young man, very, very young, and trying to get some context in my mind, trying to think about what John would be like. I try to drag John at the moment he became a disciple of Jesus, and I bring him here as a citizen of this community and in this church. What would John be like? He would be your son. Or he might be your brother. Being grade 10, or perhaps grade 11. This is John at the moment he follows Christ. He's outclassed in every way with the other guys, but don't let that bother you. He could hold his own. What are we talking about? Well, this is where we get a little subjective, but... Understanding his life, I get this picture in my head and I can't get it out of my head. John would be here, he'd be going to high school, okay, but he was competitive. And that would mean he would probably be involved in competitive sports, being a Canadian, most likely he'd be playing hockey. And he would distinguish himself on his team, now listen, as the guy who spends the most time in the penalty box. 
to the chagrin of his fellow co-players who have to always play, you know, the penalty killing moments because he's on the ice again, driving his coaches crazy. Now, I don't know if he actually would have liked hockey or sports, but it's very clear John had a short fuse. Really? I thought he was some kind of saint. You know, he wakes up with angel wings and stuff like that. No, he is all too human and too much like you and I. How can we make such a claim? It sounds so erroneous to say that. And how can that be possibly true? Based on what evidence? Well, from Jesus himself. He recognized his personality. And I like how one uh, commentator writes, it says this in Mark 3.17, where Jesus actually pins John and his older brother as well with him, who was his disciple, with the same kind of mark. And he says this, although Jesus charged the changed the name of Simon to Peter, James and his brother John were the only disciples upon whom were bestowed nicknames. The fiery evangelical zeal and extreme reactions often displayed by these two inspired Jesus to rather humorously dub them the sons of thunder. This is interesting because Jesus is God and he says everything perfectly and he never exaggerates. So when Jesus looks at James and John and says, you're the sons of thunder, that means they were sons of thunder. They had a fuse. And I think for the most time, it was probably comical for them as a group to be together. You see James and John sparring with each other verbally and physically all the time. But at some times, it gets a little too far and probably gets a little annoying. And every once in a while, it goes too far and actually goes a little dark. In fact, on one such occasion, recorded in Scripture in two different locations, Jesus had to reprimand them sharply. Or I should say, in the Gospel of Luke. What happened was Jesus and his disciples were on their way back to Jerusalem. And it was a long journey, traveling on foot. And they couldn't make the trip in one day, so they stopped at a small community, a Samaritan village. When the people in that village realized their association as being Jewish and going to Jerusalem, they refused them service and kicked them out of town. It was prejudicial in nature. They were ostracized because of their belief and of their race. Now, could you imagine you and I going to a gas station and saying, no, I'm not serving you gas because I don't like you. That would raise the ire of anybody, and that was definitely the case for John and James. It's recorded for us in these words in Luke, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another town. The boys went nuclear because they had embedded amounts of rage inside of them. At least that's what we can see in the scripture. They did not understand the heart of Christ completely. They didn't understand that Jesus had come truly only to save and not destroy. He didn't come to judge but bring relationship. Apparently it would look like John was in process of being changed, but hadn't quite arrived there yet. It wasn't just that they had a fiery personality. They also were extremely competitive. 
At least it was that way at home. Now, competition, I don't think, is bad because in some healthy doses, it can teach you humility. It can teach you to stand up under adversity, even under failure, even after loss, that you can stand up, work hard, and prevail. To work together as a team and valuing the efforts of others. To work with and promote the people on your left and on your right. These are positive elements that you can gain from competition. But we know all too easy and all too well that too much competition does exactly the opposite of that. And unfortunately, unfortunately, it would appear that both James and John had just a little bit too much competitive spirit in them and probably precipitating from their mom. Now, mom, Solomon came up to Jesus, who was a Christ follower and actually supported the ministry of Jesus and her sons as they were following him, came up to Jesus and said, I have a request. And Jesus said, yeah, okay, what is it? She goes, Lord, in your kingdom, in heaven, I want you to promote my boys. I want one to be on your left and the other to be on the right which is basically saying, I want them to be the top dog of anybody else around. I want them to be right beside you all the time because they're my boys. And Jesus tactfully and truthfully sidestepped her request and kind of let it fall to the side. But the other ten disciples caught wind of it, and they were deeply, deeply offended because it creates division. Because it creates strife when you promote yourself above everybody else with a disregard about who they are and what they are, it can create great crisis. And Jesus had a crisis with his disciples because of this breaking, because of these two sons of thunder and their mom were stirring up the pot a little bit. So Jesus brought them together and said, look, in this world, it's dog eat dog and it's all about yourself. He actually uses the word lord over each other. It's about you having more than the person beside you, having more power, having more popularity. It doesn't matter how you get it as long as you get it. But Jesus says, that is not how it's going to be for you. And he says this in Mark 10. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' heart and where John started were miles apart. It's just where he started. So when we look at the life of John and how he writes the gospel, it's not the same John. So what happened? How did John come from this son of thunder to someone who is filled with love? Someone who is no longer competitive, but willing to lower himself to nothing and vaporize himself almost away from the gospel so he had no attention brought to himself. What happened? Well, it's quite simple. He spent time with Jesus. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. He lived with them, ate with them, shared good times and bad times. He saw Jesus heal people. He saw people who were blind that could see, the deaf could hear, the lame could walk. Those tormented by evil spirits were delivered from demonic oppression by his spoken word. He spoke to the dead and they came to life. He walked on water and he speaks to the storm and the skies clear up and the sea turns to glass. It is something different about this 
person. He saw it with his own eyes. There is more to him than meets the eye. The author, the creator of life, in bodily form, right there in front of him. He saw and experienced Jesus. He saw him pray over a small amount of food from a little boy to feed thousands of people, and on and on it went. But it wasn't just what he saw. Perhaps more importantly, it's what he heard. He heard the words of life. He heard Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He heard Jesus teaching about forgiving one another. He saw Jesus display his love and reinforced by what he said. He saw Jesus die on the cross and forgive those who were at that same time crucifying him. He saw Jesus come alive from the dead. He saw the empty tomb and he had the chance to put his hands in Jesus' hands and feel his nail-scarred hands. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God and he knew that the Son of God came because he loved him and it changed him completely. This is important for us to know. We don't want to talk about John, but we're going to go to another writing that he had written, and it's called 1 John. I kind of find it funny that one person who's trying to avoid getting attention actually has four books named after him. John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. I'm not sure if that would be upsetting for him. Maybe there's some comic, some, you know, comic relief in that. I'm not sure. But anyways, there's a lot of books named after the one guy who doesn't want to be identified. And here we see what he says in the very beginning of 1 John. And it says this in the very first verse. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. We're going to hear a lot more about it, but just as a very quick capsulation, the capital word, word, in the Greek means logos, which translates for us is the spoken word, the very voice of God that created the universe. That person, the Son of God, became one of us. And it says this now in the second verse. That life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and has appeared to us. And here's the next verse. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John was transformed by the person of Jesus Christ. End of story. Absolutely, completely changed. His life was changed because he, had, he saw the author of life, this wonderful, miracle-working, transforming, loving Jesus. And if we read through the gospel of first, or not the gospel, but the book of first John, it's literally only on four pages of my Bible, and you'll find the word love more than 40 times. He has been changed by the presence of the Lord. Now getting back to our question, why did John write in third person? And what was his motivation for writing in the first place? John kept his identity as concealed as he possibly could as not to distract away from his central theme and focus, and that was Jesus. He didn't, 
He didn't want anything of himself to get in the way of the most important, the most dynamic piece of truth and storytelling of life in the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. He didn't want to have anything to do in getting away with the most important person in the universe who wants to know you and I. And his motivation for writing the Gospel of John, he was very careful to conceal his own identity, but he was not at all, at, at all shy in sharing his reasons for why he wrote the Gospel. And we find this in John 20, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Not somebody else, of course somebody else. But remember, he's writing to you. What he's doing in the gospel is saying, I have the first row seat in the ministry and life of Christ. I'm stepping out of it, and I want you to sit in that. I want you to experience exactly what I experienced. And it's so telling because he wants you and I to have a relationship with God, the same relationship that he had. John only referred to himself in third person, and he called himself simply the disciple whom Jesus loved. It wasn't meant to be a competitive term or that he was better than anybody else, but what he was demonstrating in his words is he's the disciple who was deeply impacted by the love of Jesus. Even when he was referring to himself, he couldn't help but give the attention back to the primary focus of his writing, the wonderful person of Jesus Christ. And that is the wonderful thing about it because he wants you and I to draw closer to him through believing and trusting him. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, you can believe that Jesus existed historically, but that's not what he's talking about. Of course you're going to do that. But it's not even about just believing that Jesus came to earth and died on the cross for our sins. Well, that's getting much, much closer, but he's going actually a little deeper than that. It's really close, but not close enough. What he's really trying to intimate is that you believe for yourself that he died for you because he loves you. And that's different. It's for you that he's concerned about. That Jesus loves you. That if you're the only person that was alive on the earth, that he would have come to die on the cross for you. This personable God, the one who made the entire universe, values you more than anything else. The universe probably didn't really cost God anything because he could build it, pull it apart by his spoken word. But when he came to die on the cross for us, he had to empty himself completely to atone for our wrongdoings and our sins so that we can have a right standing before him. The love of God that transforms our life because he had come, that he would change our lives is the thing that motivated him to write to us in the first place. This love of Jesus is awesome. I, I have to admit, I, uh, I had a nostalgic moment this morning. I was listening to the Gaithers. Some of you are saying, oh, I love the Gaithers. And some of you are saying, really? The Gaithers? And some of you are going to say, what's a Gaither? Okay, that would just be a product of you being young and me being too old. It's Christian music for helplessly lost in the 50s, okay? It's just where it's at. But there's a song I was listening to, and it had... These words to it, something beautiful, something good, 
all of my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. God wants to have a relationship with us. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. Every word, everything that we're going to hear about is always pointing to the love of God found in the person of Jesus and how he wants to be interested in our lives, wants to be a part of our lives, and wants us to be with him in heaven forever. That is such a wonderful, powerful story. And we find this also in the writings of John 3.16, where we find these important words, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And also another book that he wrote, the book of Revelations, we find Jesus saying these exact words, asking John to pen them for him later in his life. We find these exact words. Jesus saying, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, that is our heart door, and if anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We actually just had Alpha, and we actually, Alpha last week, and we actually focused a lot on this verse, and there's a painting that actually helps to describe this beautiful scene that Jesus is painting for us. You see, the belief, the faith that Jesus is talking about is a personal faith. It's not just up in the head. It's about opening up your heart to him at the same time. It's a receiving of him. There's no holding back. It's an invitation for us to have him in our lives. And it's a choice that we have to make. And that choice Jesus waits for, for us to make. He's the King of the universe, commands everything, but when it comes to our heart, he does not. He waits for us to choose him as he has already chosen for us by him dying on the cross. It's a powerful, powerful thing. I want to tell you something. If you're a believer right now and you feel like God's a million miles away because of whatever you're going through, I want to tell you something. Jesus cares, and Jesus loves you, and he will hear your prayers, and he will answer them. Amen? He will, I mean that. He will answer your prayer. Amen? This is important to know. We're not here playing church. We are in the presence of the Lord, and He is interested in our lives every moment, whether we feel it or not. He was writing to encourage us as well, that wherever you do, wherever you go, Jesus is literally right beside you in everything you do. The power of of the gospel of John. That is what's embedded in it. I don't know about you, but that excites me. That I have a living faith, a walking faith, an opportunity to actually know Jesus, not to be a religious person, but every day we can walk with the Lord in good times and bad times. And if you are here for the first time, and, or you've been here many times, I don't know, and you have not yet received Christ into your life, and you're thinking about it, or maybe even right now, you're like, I don't want to wait till next week. I want to actually receive him in my life today. You don't have to wait. We can do that right here and right now with a simple prayer that we can do together. In fact, we're going to do that right now in closing. If you have in your heart right now a desire to serve the Lord, I would ask you just to take the words that are going to be prayed, that they be just your words right now, and let it just be personal. And let it be an open heart of faith. And let's just do that now and come to Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, that we can be here. Lord, 
I come to you now with my heart, Lord. I ask you to forgive me of all my wrongs, all the things that I'm ashamed about, my brokenness, Lord, the things that I wish I never did. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me and set me straight and that you would make me whole. Lord, I, I want you in my life. Please come in to my life, I pray. And I thank you. I receive your love and your gift that you gave me with your death and your resurrection that I have you now as my friend. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.